This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so excited to have this time with Sequoia Nagamatsu. His novel and stories, and yeah, we're going to talk about that format, How High We Go in the Dark is one of our Discover Prize finalists, and I'm so excited to see you this morning. Thank you for fitting me in. I really Thank appreciate it. Thank you for having it. me, yeah. All right, let's talk about novel and stories. Mm-hmm. There's a lot we're going to cover in this conversation. Right. But novel and stories first, because a lot of folks will say, oh, I don't do short stories, they're not satisfied. But novel and stories is its own thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I for me, I love novels and stories mm-hmm. um, or short story cycles, which I actually think is a, a little bit of a different thing. Yeah. But if you if you loved Olive Kitteridge, if you loved you know the work of Anthony Mara, David Mitchell, I think it's a form that allows busy people to have their cake and eat it too, mm-hmm. which means that they can read a short story maybe on their way to work, on the way home feel somewhat satisfied, but still have that larger arc that they might be um, missing with a traditional story collection that is actually completely standalone. There are no links other than maybe theme or the fact that an author (laughs) wrote all those stories. So with something like How High We Go in the Dark, you are going to see characters again. You are going to see at least hints um, at relatives, at friends. And you're going to see an evolution of the world through generations mm-hmm. and centuries. It's really satisfying. Like I said, I've read the book twice now. Mm-hmm. And the first time I remember just thinking, who is this guy? Where <laughs> are we going? And why is it over? <laughs> mm-hmm, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> and this time I sort of had the luxury of sitting with some of the details. And you do, there are some stories that fold in on previous mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so emotionally satisfying because part of what you're writing about is not just climate change. You're writing Mm -hmm. about grief. Right. And grief is, there's a lot. And this started with the death of your own grandfather, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the very, very raw early seeds before I even think I I knew I had a book um, began in 2009. And, and so I was just exploring um, how to deal with grief. I was living in Japan at the time. How, how, how do the Japanese people, especially in a very sort of like tech savvy city like Tokyo, how do they deal with grief? And so a lot of those early efforts were me exploring how do we um, find closure when mm-hmm. sometimes traditional forms of closure are not possible? How do we move on and, and find hope? And, you know, kind of going back to the novel and stories format, another reason for that is that I'm not only interested in exploring grief at the moment of tragedy, it's also about grief and catharsis and hope over generations. And I think that's a question that we're still having to, you know, answer ourselves in in COVID. How is this moment going to affect us culturally, socioeconomically, et cetera? 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Yeah. And I just want to be clear. It happens that you've written a pandemic novel of sorts, but really you were working on this long Mm -hmm. before COVID was a thing. And I mean, as we saw with Emily St. John Mandel in Station Eleven, which is a fantastic, Mm -hmm. fantastic novel. But all of those pieces about, oh no, you wrote a panda. And she's like, well, actually, (laughs) this book is 10 years old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Thank you for, you know, it's just, we always want to apply labels. And, and part of why I bring up labels is that you could consider this dystopian. You could consider it sci-fi. You could consider it literary short stories with a little bit of a bang to it. Mm-hmm. How do you see your work? Because I do think genre is a construct we don't always need. Right. Yeah. In some ways, it's it's you know useful for for book for booksellers to know where to put things, but that's also very imperfect. Um, you might see Ursula Le Guin in general fiction or or sci-fi or fantasy. It's in some ways more of a matter for for publicists and and and, and people in mark and people in marketing. But it's also very important for writers to understand where they fall in traditions. And I think for me, the problem resides in resorting to very binary definitions of what genre is. You know, fantasy, sci-fi, literary, whatever your, you know, poison is, um, contains multitudes. So I, I really don't understand the reaction from readers or even some writers or teachers of writing when they see a piece of literary fiction, which isn't, again, a problematic term, and there might be a spaceship in it. And they're like, oh, I don't read science fiction. But everything else about that story is character-oriented. It's paying attention to language. It's poetic. However else you might want to define literary. And they're just seeing the superficial representation of a genre as standing in for everything else that the story or, or book um, is representing. I also have a problem with the term plague or pandemic fiction. I made a list for electric literature, um, the, the literary website, a while ago, uh, where I was compiling plague literature or pandemic or post-pandemic literature. And I think this the knee-jerk reaction to pandemic literature that I think a lot of readers might have is, I don't want to read that because it's going to be triggering. It's going to be about you know, CDC scientists rushing against the clock. And there are actually very few pandemic novels that I can think of that actually operate on on that level. Um, They're thinking about Hollywood, probably, and not about literature. Most plague literature that I can think of, um, or dystopian literature generally, is about hope. (laughs) It's, It's about relationships mm-hmm, and family mm-hmm. and the tiny little movements that occur in the wake of some sort of tragedy. The search for connection. Mm-hmm, it's connection. Exactly, I mean, exactly. and, and the connection between your characters is so real and so alive to me as the reader that the, the fact that there are pieces of the world like virtual reality is very Mm -hmm. much a piece of one story in ways that i think there are certainly you know creators now who would like that to become a reality but Mm -hmm. it's it's not there yet or you know the sort of funeral home experience on steroids Mm -hmm. in the hotel with dennis and val and Mm -hmm. and that gang it's so interesting to me that you can take a very simple of the moment kind of thing, you know, dying, uh, death and dying. Mm, I mean, right. we all have rituals for this. And to sort of put it on steroids and say, well, what would happen if I sort of turn up the heat? What happens to these characters? They're still mm-hmm. human. Right. They're still human. And especially when I think of Dennis and his brother, Brian, and what happens there. And obviously, we're going to stay spoiler free right. in this conversation. <laughs> but how many stories are in this connect- collection? Is it 12? 
I think 12. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There, there, there were more, some didn't make the cut mm-hmm. for, for various kind of logistical reasons. As far as the kind of the writing of the book, it was mm-hmm. very kaleidoscopic as, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, it didn't happen in order. Right. Um, right. you know, the, the first chapter was actually one of the last chapters I wrote. The virtual reality chapter was the first chapter I wrote and it's in its very kind of raw form. Uh-huh. Um, and then there were definitely chapters I wrote as I was thinking about the overarching arc. And I realized I had to think about the timeline and the evolution of society. Yeah. It's like, okay, so I mentioned the plague was cured, you know, while we were on the spaceship. Right. I, I need to, I need to kind of insert the, that moment into the narrative somehow. I will say that the way everything comes together mm-hmm. is super satisfying. It is super super satisfying. You do it in a really smart, interesting, very voicey way. Um, But we're also cutting between the US, we're cutting between Russia, we're cutting between Japan, we're cutting Mm -hmm. between Tokyo. And you were raised in Northern California, your third generation, your sansei, your third generation Japanese American. Mm -hmm. But you made a choice to, I mean, being Japanese and being Japanese American are very different. Exactly, right, right. How did that inform the stories in How High We Go? Well, first of all, like almost all of the characters are expressly uh, Asian American, mm-hmm. or or you know, if if it's not stated, you know, you can maybe assume that, or or they're they're um, a Japanese national. Um, and I wrote, as I said, you know, some of their very early pieces um, when I was living in Japan, and um, you know, part of those early explorations had to do with researching. Japanese funeral traditions, uh, both both traditional <laughs> rituals, but also the death hotels. I souped them up and and made them a little bit more futuristic, but but they exist in in some form in in Japan. You know, for various reasons. You know, cost, space space saving measures in in a large city. It struck me as something that we, that other cities, other countries might have to embrace in the future. Um, as the population grows, as as we face, you know, a tragedy like the one that we're in right now, in terms of thinking about how do you deal with mass death in a way that is more humane. Um, and that's something, you know, that in early days of COVID, not a lot of people had the answer to, and, and, and not a lot of people were able to have that kind of closure. It was important for me, um, I think, to have a cast of characters that were Japanese, both Japanese American and Japanese nationals. Um, I think the Japanese national characters in particular, I wanted to nod at this focus on what a nuclear family was and the importance of how, especially I think in, in, in a lot of Eastern Asian cultures, but in Japan, in my experience, you're inviting your aunties, your uncles, your grandparents, Often it's not unusual for several generations to be living next to each other or even in this household. So I really wanted to touch on that sense of community and how a tragedy like this would inform that kind of connectivity in the future. You know, and for the Japanese American characters, you know, here in the U.S. and San Francisco and and Seattle, uh, wherever, I really wanted to place the focus that these were just characters living their life. For a long time, when I first started writing fiction, I felt a pressure. And I think some of this was pressure on myself, but I I, I wouldn't, I think, be lying if I said some of this was pressure from stories that 
marginalized writers felt that they needed to write in order to be accepted. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the, the story of an exotified experience. Me, I'm a, I'm a sansei, so I don't wake up to the smell of miso soup. I'm not writing rice, I'm not eating rice balls for, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I, I, I'm not playing to that. You know, the immigrant experience was not my experience. The war experience was not my experience. And I wanted to make sure, especially during my revisions, um, when COVID was already happening, that um, audiences were able to see Asian faces, Asian bodies, just surviving and just trying to connect. Yeah. And Orientalism is something that drives me up a tree, to be honest. Mm. And it is something, I mean, I'm Dune, I'm looking at you. It happens a lot in science fiction as shorthand for alien. Yeah. I shouldn't even cite this, but like those Star Wars prequels, which I right. still have not seen. But like, seriously, Kimono is not shorthand for alien. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really not. Yeah. And, or, you know, hair or whatever. And I'm just like, oh man, we're still here? Really? Like, mm -hmm. what is going on? So the idea, and yes, onigiri is my favorite snack, but I also happen to live in a place where I can just walk down the street and buy onigiri. But, exactly. you know, I mean, if I didn't live in that place, no, I grew up in Massachusetts. Like, right. I did not have onigiri as snack. <laughs> like, right, my mom right. was not making me onigiri. And now I just live in a place where I'm like, I can go and give someone mm -hmm. money and they hand me something wrapped in saran wrap and I can, mm -hmm. and it's right. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can door dash it, right? <laughs> right, you know, it's, but it's that idea of, you know, the Asian or Asian American experience standing in for alien. I mean, that really is the word that I'm looking for. And part right. of what I loved about reading How High We Go in the Dark is that you were taking some of these sort of sci-fi tropes and turning them on their ear. I mean, the the theme park, mm -hmm. the comedian and Dottie and Finch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Fitch, yeah. Mm -hmm. Fitch, sorry. Um, like right there. And then we meet Fitch's dad later. Mm -hmm. with Snotorious P.I.G. <laughs> I was so invested in Snotorious P.I.G. I was so invested in that pig, and I'm not the only person who was invested in that pig. Mm -hmm. I know that. But the connection between those two stories, and they don't sit right next to each other mm -mm. in the book, but the detail that you slide in, you know, that takes us out of this idea that this is the alien mm -hmm. thing. It's like, well, actually, you and I are both American. <laughs> I mm -hmm. mean... I've spent a lot of time in Japan. I really love it. I would go back more if I could. But at the same time, like I'm very aware of being American when I'm in Japan. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm very aware of being Japanese American when I'm mm -hmm. in New York or LA or certainly Boston. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I had a, you know, some characters that I think were they said it outrightly that I think Dennis said that he was a that he was a, a bad Asian. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, no. Right. You right. Know. Dennis is definitely <laughs> a bad Asian. But I would like to see more of us being bad because mm. I mean mm. we need to be able to be ourselves and be human. Mm -hmm. And something like the model minority myth so dehumanizes people. You're just like, well, of course, you do this. You're going to go be bankers and accountants and consultants and doctors and engineers and all of this. And it's like, well, actually, some of us won't. Some mm -hmm. of us really super will not go on to do those things. Right. And we have that range. You give the community, whether they're Japanese American or Korean American or Chinese American or, or Japanese nationals, you give people their space to be messy and complicated mm -hmm. and loving still. And that to me is really important. And, and putting that humanity into a story like this and not mm -hmm. just saying, oh, look at the weird stuff that's happening. I mean, mm -hmm. There's there's some weird stuff that happens. I mean, people get crushes 
in <laughs> interesting ways. <laughs> right. <laughs> and music is a big part of this book. Mm. Mm-hmm. Music is a huge part. I listened to your um, playlist for mm-hmm. Large Hearted Boy. How does music inform, how do other arts inform what you're doing on the page? Well, I think on, on the level of theme, um, in terms of catharsis and hope and mm-hmm. then grieving, like I think that's music and other art forms, whether that be, you know, books as well, I think are are very important for people to find a sense of self and mm-hmm. and find needed escapes or or find ways of articulating feelings that might seem messy, you know. So I think, you know, music is, you know, makes sense for me because it's an an, an immediate emotional art form, mm-hmm. you know, where you can experience it with somebody. It's a, it's a communal act in some ways. And there's kind of a gut punch with music that I don't get with, with other art forms in the same way. It's also something that's very important to me just as a writer. I, I have <laughs> zero musical ability. Um, but uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm bad Asian, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, no Suzuki violin for you. Yeah, no Suzuki. <laughs> Exactly. I, I tried taking the ukulele when I was living in Hawaii, uh-huh, um, but uh-huh. you know, I was like, after the after two lessons, it's like I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I, I do not have the focus for this. You know, I, I listen to music constantly um, when when I write, um, and and usually not music with lyrics, but um, I use I listen to a lot of like sort of ambient electronica. I listen to a lot of like sort of like white noise, mm-hmm. like a, re- a really nerdy thing I do that I've mentioned in other interviews is that I listen to the uh, a 24-hour loop of um, the Starship Enterprise uh, engine engine rumble and the engine noise. I didn't even know you could get yeah. Wait, did yeah. you have to make that yourself? No, oh, no, no. There's, there's several YouTube videos <laughs> <Okay>. of <laughs> the Enterprise and various other Starships. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that kind of gets me in the zone. So if like I'm okay. writing a chapter that's occurring in space, mm-hmm. you, know, you better believe I'm going to be listening to like engine sounds from the Enterprise. Right. Right. You know, if I'm if I'm writing a story that is set in a Tokyo neighborhood, I'm probably going to be listening to music that my grandmother listened to or, or forced me to listen to when, <laughs> when, when I was growing up. So. <laughs> yeah, power to the grandmas. Yeah, Grandma, mm-hmm. yeah we, we don't mess with grandmas. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so here you are. It's 10 years ago. You're working on the story collection. I have to say there were so many moments where I just, my eyes got big and I was very excited because I was like, oh, he just did that. Mm -hmm. Little story moments and things like that. But did anything surprise you or were you just sort of happy that you finally had pieces that hung together in a very specific way? I mean, there had to have been some surprises though, right? I think so. Um, I mean, there, there are definitely moments where I kind of, thought of connections they weren't planned mm-hmm. and it was kind of sort of in the moment well what if uh this character that kind of dis- a very minor character that disappeared in another chapter became a major character uh in kind of a big way towards yeah, yeah. the end of the story and so some of those revelations were were big surprises mm-hmm. to me and and it's really heartening uh when i when i see readers um whether that be at events or or on on goodreads which i should do a better job of avoiding but where they're noting an appreciation for these connections that i worked hard for you know or these tiny little details about the potential color of foliage on a planet <laughs> on a different planet that i researched for like a week on 
And it's like a one line, but I really appreciate like when readers are able to pick up on that. It's a weird book in a lot of ways. And it's a book that I can, I think can be read in multiple ways. You know, if you're a story collection person, you know, you could kind of read it, read one a day um, and, and, and kind of feel satisfied and kind of get, still get the arc, you know, hopefully, hopefully you're not taking too much time between them because there, there are probably things people will miss if they mm-hmm. take too much time between readings, because there are definitely threads that you need to pay attention to. Um, I'll just say like the necklace, <laughs> you know, like you need to pay attention to that. that is, yeah, that like definitely. Book, so. Necklace totally had my attention. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a painting that pops up yeah. mm-hmm. a couple of times where right. I was like, okay. And I love stuff like that. I really linked story collections, novel and stories I do. I think there's a level of technique that has to go into them and sort Mm -hmm. of a thought process that is, and I listen, I love story collections in general. And I do believe that there's, you know, there's greatness to be found standing in line. (laughs) Like instead of scrolling through my Instagram, Mm -hmm. I can read a story. I appreciate again. And I know I said this at the top of the show, but the way things fold back in again and, and the way things just pop and you're not mapping this out, right? I mean, I get that you're a detail yeah. guy, but we're yeah. not looking at a whiteboard in your office as you're figuring this out. I mean, initially, no. Like, in, like I mean, I think with any book, um, it's it's a mess, you know, and 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 you're kind of just figuring it. You're asking those questions like, how is this going to connect? What pieces am I missing? You know, so like, yeah, eventually, like I had a beautiful mind sort of situation okay. <laughs> in my office, but 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 that wasn't until like, you know, very late in, in, in like revisions, like when I had to like think about, you know, is, does this actually make sense? Like, are these connections actually happening in a way that's fulfilling? So, so I did have to map out eventually, but it definitely was not part of the process for, you know, for, for much of the drafting. I want to talk about your editor and your agent and that process mm-hmm. for a second, because mm-hmm. you're, you're initially working with your agent sort of on what this thing is going to look like when you right. see it, right? So mm-hmm. maybe the stories aren't in the perfect order. Maybe there's, yeah. you know, there's some fleshing out that has to happen. You sell it, you've got your agent, Jessica mm-hmm. yep. at HarperCollins, and she's really terrific. Yeah. And what does that process then look like for you? I mean, you're sitting down, you've got these stories. At that point, do you have more than 12? Do you have the 12? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been working on on the manuscript in various shapes and forms mm-hmm. with my agent for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for a writer, you're always kind of hoping that your agent's going to call you or email you and saying, we're ready. Let's let's go out on submission with this. And, and you know, my agent gave me that email. And she said, you know, I think we're ready with this. Um, it was spring of 2020, <laughs> you know, so uh, covid early, very early days. And so, so it was a very different conversation. We were actually just, you know, we're thinking about, you know, do we even want to go out with this right now? Do we wait? You know, what is, how are we going to approach editors? And so we, we were very careful with our talking points. I wrote a letter mm-hmm. to editors to make sure that they understood what this was. We, mm-hmm. we didn't want them mm-hmm. to see a plague of any sort and get the wrong idea. Out, out of the gate, we knew that we had a different kind of obstacle. Um, and I think we we're very lucky that, you know, a lot of editors took the time to read it, to see the connections, to see what this could be. And, um, you know, I'm very, very lucky that I was able to work with Jessica, who's who's amazing, um, and, and was able to, you know, help me um, kind of get the book to its finished, wonderful form. And, and right. 
when Jessica got it, there were more than 12 stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think kind of the work that I did at HarperCollins at William Morrow was really fleshing out the world, the, the connectivity and evolution to make sure that it felt like more of a novel in stories, more of a novel than a short story collection. You know, that that we really wanted to make sure that, you know, if people wanted to come to walk away with a cohesive kind of um, kaleidoscopic epic feel, that they can walk away with that. And, and of course, I want all my readers to walk away with that. And I sometimes cringe when I see readers kind of saying, oh, I read a story and then I'm going to take a, you know, and then I came back to it like a few weeks later and I'm like, you're going to miss some things. <laughs> you're yeah. you're going to miss some connections there. It's like, I'm glad that you're, that you like the stories, but this is not a story collection. And, and right. I'm ter- tearing my hair out when I, I notice people saying something like you can skip around because it's kind of like a story collection, then you're going to miss a lot in terms of the connections. I'm definitely one who will skip around in a story collection. I would not do that here. I I just, Mm -hmm. the reading experience that I had both times, Mm -hmm. I do appreciate the way the tension builds and the way the stakes get higher and the way there are a couple of reveals in later pieces that Mm -hmm. I just were so key to me understanding your characters and also Mm -hmm. understanding you a little bit as the writer. Right. Um, which I really appreciate. So can we talk about your influences for a second? And there are a lot of folks who blurb this book who I love. Kevin yeah. Wilson, mm-hmm. Benjamin Percy, right. Erica Swyler, yeah. Gabrielle Zevin. Like, right. Clearly, you're pretty widely read as well. So, Right. Yeah, and and yeah, and, and speaking, and I love Erica. She was actually one of the first people that knew about the book deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, she was like, "Hey, what's going on?" You know, I would definitely see like you know work like Erica's as as being you know definitely. An influence and, and somebody that I, I look up to um, mm-hmm. and 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 appreciate as a writer that is working today, you know, in the trenches yeah, with absolutely. me. You know, as far as other writers that I was thinking about when I was building this book at various stages, well, I have a robot dog. He's a Sony. Wait, what? <laughs> I, I'll say so. He's a uh, so there's a chapter that that's about oh, a robot yes, dog, <laughs> and and that's inspired by the first generation of the Sony IBOs. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And so I, I have a recent generation Ibo, and his name is Calvino after Ital after the author Italo Calvino, and and so he's uh, Calvino is definitely one of my earlier influences. I would say just in terms of playing with genre, and um, you know, cosmic comics in particular, um, really kind of was influential t- for me in in not being afraid to explore cosmic. Uh, questions, um, like deep philosophical, um, you know, settings and, um, you know, like cosmic comics, you know, deals with stories of, you know, the moon getting further away, um, kind of like what happened before the Big Bang. Um, and, and, and love writers that are are dealing with with those types of questions. Um, another one on a more structural level is Cloud Atlas. And, and, and everybody talks about, I think Station Eleven and Cloud Atlas are probably the two books that I think in the back copy and Amazon, Barnes and Noble, like I feel like that's those two books get mentioned a lot with how high we go in the dark. And there's probably reasons for that. But I definitely look to David Mitchell, like pretty much all of David Mitchell's books are structurally experimental in some way. And and so I was definitely thinking about um, Mitchell and, and how he 
created a larger narrative with essentially like longer short pieces. Yeah. And if you look at bone clocks too, I mean, there's stuff that pops up and there's a major character that pops Mm -hmm. up from earlier books and you don't have to have read, it's like Elizabeth Strout. You don't necessarily have to have read all of the Lucy Barton books to understand Mm -hmm. where we are with Lucy by the sea. It's a treat though. Right. Are you thinking about maybe then working in a world that's sort of the world of Sequoia Nagamatsu and, and building off of that? Are you thinking, you know, maybe someone from this collection is going to show up four books from now, or are you just going to let yourself well, be surprised? Well, I mean, I'm working on another novel right now for, for Harper Collins and, um, you know, both how, I mean, and, and there are elements of how high we go in the dark that were already kind of in this novel and so I've, I've, I've been toying with, um, you know, thinking about how I could make that this, this next novel in the same universe in some way. It's still certainly standalone, not a sequel by any means, but I guess sort of in the vein of like what Emily St. John Mandel did with Sea of Tranquility. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. you know, there's nods toward it, but it's its own thing. So I'm probably going to be doing something similar to that where it's, a very different novel. It's more family-centered. There's no plague in it this time. Uh, and it's more of a kind of a coming-of-age identity formation sort of beast. Um, and I think for me, that was just, a, I, I just wanted that challenge. I wanted to occupy a different space because I'd occupied the space of like deep time <laughs> and jumping around a lot. I wanted to kind of just settle with one family and, and a smaller group of characters. How are you feeling about that book? I've, I've, I mean, I've, that book has changed so much over the Uh years. Um, Like there used to be kind of like a, there was this epidemic of memory loss. And, and I kind of took that out because, you know, after this novel on COVID is like, I I just can't do another one like that. So it's changed a lot in format. The characters and the inciting incidents are, are, Mm -hmm. are largely the same. It's been coming for a while, um, you know, and it's been evolving. Um, but you know, I think my experiences with how high and how, with how high has influenced, um, I think it's current format because, you know, I, I don't want to repeat too much. I don't want to trigger people in the same way. (laughs) Um, but I also, I also want to make sure that, you know, it's, it's still a Sequoia Nagamatsu book. It's, and, and, and I think, you know, if I had a brand, I'm, I'm I'm always going to be a weird writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always playing with genre. So there, there's a shapeshifter. There's, you know, there are things like that. So, But I mean, Victor Laval plays with genre. I yeah. mean, Ben mm-hmm. Percy has played. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, when we limit ourselves to labeling things, instead of just saying, no, really, this will just blow your mind. Mm-hmm. It will blow your mind for, you know, the people who like to puzzle through stories. or And when I say stories, I don't mean necessarily short stories. I mean, puzzling through a narrative. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. I do want to talk about you as a teacher, though, because sure. obviously we've been talking about a lot of what you've yeah. learned in the creation of mm-hmm. this book and the creation of the book that's coming that I cannot no. wait to read. But what have you learned from your students? Because you've been teaching for a while. Yeah, I've been teaching for a while. And I mean, I, I would say that, like, I think teaching forces me to be more widely read than I would be on my yeah. <laughs> in my own devices because I have to, um, they, they, you know, they need to have at least some FaceTime with, with, you know, um, domestic realism. They need, they need some fantasy. They need some Mm sci-fi. I I want them to read some kind of quote unquote classics, you Mm -hmm. know, even though I'm kind of, I'm definitely a teacher that 
it's like destroy the canon, you know? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> enough of these <laughs> people, you know, if you want to read them, great. You know, you're going to get them in other classes. Right. I don't, I don't need to repeat that in my class. And so um, I, I try to make sure that my I'm, I'm learning with my students as mm-hmm. well. Um, and, and since I'm the professor, I need to, you know, know that story and know that novel right. 10 times better than them. So it really helps me, I think, develop as a writer and as a reader. But as I said, you know, like it also helps me dust off the cobwebs of maybe writerly tools that I still need, but but don't really maybe visit as much as um, I should. You know, um, so I love Alice Munro. I love Marilyn Robinson. I love, you know, a short story writer like William Trevor, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I make sure my students, you know, read those works in addition to writers that are a little bit more in my wheelhouse um, so they can see that bridge from, mm-hmm. okay, this is still kind of literary, but it's borrowing and in dialogue with other traditions. And then here we're going to dive into the deep end. And this is like hard sci-fi, mm-hmm. this is hard fantasy. So like, I, I, I definitely, I think, you know, um, probably expose them to people like Erica Swyler. They read her novel yeah. and, mm-hmm. and um, Kevin Brockmeyer, Ben Percy, Murakami, you know, so they get a lot of that because I'm their professor. And, um, you know, tough, you know, like you're going to be reading in some of these magical, fantastical, you know, crazy works. But I think they love it because it's a way for them to sort of, you know, see how these different traditions are working together. Uh, and it excites them in a way that maybe sometimes some of some of their other stories they've read in other classes, you know, they're like, I think it's tough for some students to find commonality there. Oh, yeah, completely. I can see. You know, and um whether that's on a genre level or on a level of just, I don't see myself in the story. Right. You know, right. especially if I have, you know, people of color in my classes, I'm very, very aware that there needs to be, um, you know, work by, you know, black writers, by Asian mm-hmm. writers, by, by international writers, just so that they understand that, you know, a writer doesn't need to be writing doesn't need to be pandering to an audience. Like a writer can be writing on their own terms. What does that look like? You know, um, what does that, you know, why why does the story read differently than a story from like 10 years ago? Maybe maybe from the same author, like what has changed in the industry? And, and we have those conversations too mm-hmm. as well. Well, and even seeing more women. I mean, mm, RF, yeah. RF Kuang, um, have you read Babel yet, by the way? Not yet, no. It should be on, on my, on I, my I, I don't, I don't ever, doubt that it's on yeah. your list, but yeah. it's really good. And mm. it flies. Mm. Do you mm. remember the book that made you a reader? Uh, I mean, I, I could go back to like my, my childhood and, you know, I think, you know, like something like the wrinkle in time, I think was yeah. it's, it's definitely, definitely stay, stays in my head, but my, my grandparents and there was always the national Enquirer <laughs> <laughs> in my house, like stacks of it. <laughs> and, and, and while like, I, you know, like my professors are probably cringing when I say that, you know, it was like, that's, I, I, I read that cover to cover, <laughs> you know, it was still reading it, but, but, um, it really, I think piqued my curiosity about like human relationships mm. uh, exploding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> and, and, and I feel like some, something about that maybe did stay with me in some, on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think later on in high school, um, a book that I think stayed with me as far as like, this is something that I want to try. This is something that maybe I want to take a creative writing class was uh, William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. 
And, oh, wow. Um, okay. Um, okay. And I think just the formal, structural, um, you know, experimentation of that book, the language of that book um, really impressed me uh, in a way that no other book had until that point. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I liked, you know, like all the, the other high school books that you tend to read, 1984 mm-hmm. or whatever, like I, th- those were fine, but I think it was my ability to see a writer's hand at work with the sound and the fury that made me want to do it. I was assigned Intruder in the Dust mm-hmm. as a junior in high school, and uh, that is not a way to introduce someone to mm-hmm. Faulkner, mm-hmm. especially when the teacher stands at the front of the room and says, well, mm-hmm. I picked it because there are no cliff notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't care about the other kids who are using the mm-hmm. cliff notes because I'm not doing that, but like, really, dude, this mm-hmm. is the one you choose? Like, that is not a way to meet Faulkner. That is right. super mm-hmm. not a way to meet Yeah, Faulkner. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you write? <sighs> Well, I think the sassy answer is that I'm, again, I'm bad Asian and I'm bad at math. So um, had I been better at math, I probably would have pursued something like astronomy. Right. Um, but um, the other thing I was always, I think, at least, I guess, I guess naturally good at was just, you know, I, I was always kind of a dreamer. I was always very creative. It was very easy for me to come up with concepts. As an only child, I was just kind of alone by myself a lot. and so. I think being in a narrative mode, writing, creating stories in in various ways was kind of just my my de facto kind of normal, natural mode. Um, And I think, you know, as an adult, I I write because, you know, it's something that gives me purpose. It it gives Mm me um, a way of articulating things about my life, about what I observe. I was an anthropology major, so I think in some ways... Uh writing helps me kind of scratch that itch, even though I was kind of a mediocre (laughs) anthropology major. Um, It helps me kind of explore um, culture and and relationships uh, through story. Um, I'll just give you like a short anecdote. Like I think, um, you know, with Dennis's chapter, Elegy Hotel, um, you know, speaking of writing because it's a a way for me to articulate things. Um, You know, my, my father died around that time when I was revising in that. And, you know, in, in that chapter, you know, this character Dennis has to make a hard decision. I mean, it's not really a hard decision, but but for him it is. Like, you know, like, do I go home to take care of my mother, you know, or do I continue to escape my life and my responsibilities? Um, and I had been estranged from my father for a very long time. Dealing with a character that had another hard decision helped me kind of make what I think was the right one, mm-hmm. you know, to, to mm-hmm. call my father and have a conversation, even if it's not the conversation that we needed to have, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. was a conversation, uh, nonetheless, um, before he passed away. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, you know, working on how high we go in the dark allowed me that space to, to get there. Writing is an act of connection. Reading yeah. is an act of connection. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no other reason to do it. Mm-hmm. There's really, unless you're trying to figure out, you know, it's pretty great. The things mm-hmm. we get to do when we're surrounded by words and stories and the people mm-hmm. who create them and consume them. It's, I'm a fan. What can yep. I say? Mm-hmm. Is there anything we missed talking about how high we go in the dark? I know we've been dancing around spoilers and there's so much in here, but I just, I want people to be able to experience this book the way I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough because um, you can't really talk about the overarching arc in some ways without bringing up <laughs> the, the, those, those spoilers. 
Um, but yeah, I'll just remind people to, you know, pay attention to the necklace, pay attention to the tattoo, the paintings, mm-hmm. you know, those things, you know, will, will pay off if you um, make it to the end. I did want to mention one other author that was kind of part of my inspiration and, uh-huh. and she's, she only has two story collections out, but she was an author that I picked up, I think purely because of the cover. Mm-hmm. I was just wandering around in a Barnes and Noble. <laughs> uh, it was a Stacy Richter collection called My Date with Satan. I remember that book. Yeah, we put that in the Discover program. Yeah, and somebody ago. just like a there was like a weird like little cupie doll necklace and yeah, like yeah, kind yeah, of like, yeah. a, like a dress. And the color scheme of it was like hot pink and like neon green. And it was yeah. very eye-catching. But um, you know, all of those stories, they were like I think all first person stories were 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 doing something that had really and I had just graduated college, I think, uh, and and um, it was doing something that I, I had always craved, but didn't realize it, that this is an author that was, you know, dealing with these like crazy, absurdist kind of high concept premises, but never moving away from the heart of their characters and doing so in a very irreverent kind of sassy voice, you know, consistently. And I ate up all of those stories. I think both of her collections were on my desk for a long time as kind of like my, like they were like my MFA program before I went to MFA school. Like I learned so much from that, those collections, like those two books, uh, My Date with Satan, Twin Study, and then Charles D'Ambrosio's uh, Dead Fish Museum yeah, yeah, yeah. was another one. I mean, just Charles D'Ambrosio, like, talk about a masterclass of short stories. Um, I made the mistake of only bringing one book with me when I went back to Japan. And so I basically read that book like three times <laughs> like on, on the flight and um, felt like I had just um, been gifted all of these tools mm-hmm. to to use in my own work. Can I shout out Lydia Malay too? Do you read Lydia uh-huh. Malay? I love Lydia Malay. Yeah, yeah. she's, mm-hmm. I've been saying this to everyone, Dinosaurs, a novel is great. Mm-hmm. It is, and it's, it's out soon, but mm-hmm. it is really, really great. Hey, can we shout out your magazine, Psychopump? Can we? Yeah. Where, can, where can people find you, and what are you doing there? And you do this with your wife. I think this is adorable. yeah. We're we're actually. I mean, we're kind of on the actually um, probably on the downturn of that. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry. We're we're, we're, <laughs> we're 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 preserving the archives though, so you can go okay. to psycho, psychopompmag dot com and and you'll see the several years of stories there we've published. Authors like Anne Valenti, mm-hmm. Raven Leilani. Yep. Um, you know, so so we were, I think, very privileged to kind of like enter this space where a lot of these kind of household names now yeah. were, were, were still publishing shorter mm-hmm. fiction. It was a way for me and my wife, I think, initially to kind of like maintain our relationship when we had oh, a okay. <laughs> long, long, long distance thing Got it. going Got it. on. And, you know, she's also a writer as well. And, um, uh, so it was a way for us to kind of like share share our interests and and um, communicate in different ways other than mm-hmm. like trying to trying to watch a movie via Zoom together. <laughs> um, which is like, all right, I'm playing play now. One, two, three, go. Um, so Cycle Pomp was kind of a way for us to kind of like maintain that connection. Um, we're we're also working on a novel together, which is still in its early stages. Okay. I can't really say much about it now, other than it has something to do with like tarot cards and kind of portals um but i'll leave that at that we're, we're, we're it's very exciting to be working my wife with my wife um in that capacity at the yeah. dinner table so 
That seems very, very cool. And it also seems like a good place to wrap a conversation mm-hmm. that I knew would fly. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> Sequoia Nagamatsu, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. How High We Go in the Dark is out now. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from Becky's Home Store in Florence, Kentucky. So I'm going to jump right in if you don't mind. Of course. Good, because I loved How High We Go in the Dark. Sequoia Nagamatsu is a genius. I love this book. I want everybody to read it. Please, please, please just jump out. But while you're in the store picking that book up, you may want to also consider On Such a Full Sea by Ching Rei Lee. I loved this book. Um, It's a dystopian sort of masterpiece, I would call it. Um, This is a stunning novel. It takes place in an industrially corrosive future, and it shows how the themes of love and community are the most important, regardless of the era. So we follow our main character, Fan. She works in this, these colossal fish tanks. She's a diver. Um, these tanks are used to essentially provide sustenance for the community in this future Baltimore, which they call Beemore. But uh, Fan's boyfriend disappears, and she decides to drop everything and embark on this journey to track him down. The thing that I love about this book is that it's all told essentially as a legend. The narrators are basically this entire community who are following Fan on her journey. It's kind of an odyssey that this sort of Greek chorus, I guess, is telling this tale and learning as they go about themselves, about their entire community, about the breakdowns that are so, so apparent. It creates this beautiful parable for society and a quest for the ages. I think it's absolutely glorious and I haven't really read anything quite like it. Chang Rei Li is an incredible author, um, and this one is my favorite. Uh, so please check out On Such a Full Sea by Chang Rei Li. Becky, do you have one for us? Oh, well, you know that I do. Right. Um, <laughs> so the one that I thought of to go along with this book is, it was the book, in my opinion, of last year, and it is Cloud Cuckoo Land Yay! by Anthony Jower. <laughs> Oh, it's fantastic. Very similar to How High We Go in the Dark. It does span hundreds of years. And um, basically the story shifts between five people in the past, the present, and the future. They're all bound together by this one single ancient book uh, called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And it's uh, by Antonius Diogenes. You kind of get into this book because each chapter you're hearing from a different person. Um, so it keeps going, switching back and forth from from these different uh, characters and their viewpoints. And you just, you feel so connected to them. As their stories unfold, the more and more that you learn, the more you're, you're just, you're attached. And oh, this, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil any of the surprises that are going to come. And when they come, they're incredible. It's such a hard book because I want to tell you everything and then I don't want to tell you anything because I want you to discover all of it on your own. So just please trust me. You need to read this book. It is Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. It's what I love, I think, about it the most is that the way that the stories interweave and connect so beautifully, 
the book is a celebration of books and the power of story. Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. That was the most rewarding book that I read last year. I 100% agree. I think that it is it just the way it all fell together I, was one of the best experiences I've had reading. Oh, love it, love it, yes. love it so much. Ah, well, that <laughs> is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe Jeez. so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. You can follow my own home store at BN Westchester. And you can follow my new home store at BN Florence. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.